felt for quite a few years now, around this time, a very nice lady comes before uh, all of us, standing behind this box. The very nice lady's name, as you heard a moment or two ago, is, is Kathy Hansen. And Kathy Hansen sets before all of us here in Christ Church two important missions. Number one, the plea to consider filling shoeboxes for the desperate poor children of the world through Operation Christmas Child. And as you think about those things, there is on a, one level a need for those kids to have pencils and shoe, or shoes and socks and something to hold and take care of and maybe something to throw around and play with. But more important than that, the whole mission behind the box is somehow, maybe by someone, a gospel track, a book, something to explain to these kids and to their moms and dads their urgent need to repent and place their faith in Christ, the Christ who bled and died for their sins and now is alive and will soon return. They need to know that. So we take what we have been given and we share it as Jesus told us to and we share it with children in places most of us will never go to. And so we pray that God will use that little box that the little lady told us to do for his glory. That's the first thing. The second thing the nice lady behind the box urges on all of us is the need to be reminded that there has always been in the church of Jesus Christ many who are persecuted. And of course, sometimes to their death. Martyrs is what they're called. Martyrs for the sake of the gospel. So people having pledged their life to Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in Him, they now live with the dangerous fallout of this new life in the very places where God Himself has put them. And of course, the dangerous fallout comes to them by way of persecution. Persecution simply because they believe that in their place, condemned Christ stood. So the very nice lady behind the box, she urges upon all of us the urgency of consistent prayers for our brothers and sisters in Christ who we're in union with. These are our family members. And she tells us to pray for their persecutors, persecutors as well. Just like Jesus said, the shoe box boxes are prepared because Jesus said that we should share with what we have. And he also said, Matthew 25, 40, that whatever you've done to the very least of these, you've done to him. That's the shoe boxes. The call to pray for the persecuted brothers and sisters and their persecutors comes to us this morning because as long as we live in this fallen flesh body, we'll need to be reminded over and over again that we ought not to live with only our own survival and only our own good in mind. That's not the way of our master. Therefore, in some sensible way, some meaningful way, we, we have to purposely identify ourselves with, with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, fulfilling that scripture that we've read quite often and, and saw quite often. Hebrews 13, 3, remember those in prison as you, if you, your, you yourself, or excuse me, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And remember those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering, as if you were, were being denied access to food and to medicine and to water and civility and jobs and justice simply because you say you follow Christ. And that is where our concern lies this morning. So when the nice lady asked me about three weeks ago to speak to this day, in order that we'll be, we will be able to remember the persecuted, pray for them, and pray together tonight for them? It was an easy yes. Because Christian love always produces tangible action and not just sympathetic feelings. 
If all we have is sympathetic feelings, then we've fallen far, far short. So what we're going to do this morning is take a brief pause from our studies in 1 Corinthians. We're going to think hard about persecution with our Bibles open for how else could we, as we all together consider the urgency and the necessity of our prayers in these things. And as always, if you have a question or, or anything about what was said or read this morning, I'd be happy to try and answer those questions. So please come, to get, come when our time together is done. So if you would, 2 Timothy 3 is the scripture I've chosen to set us on our way. 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 843 in the church Bibles. We're going to read a few verses from there. It's probably not the best scripture to choose for the persecuted church, but it's a good one. And it is from the Bible. 2 Peter, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verse 1 here. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. Verse 10, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endure, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, verse 12, everyone, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. So let's bow together and let's pray. Father, only you truly know how desperate we are this morning for you to come and take hold of this whole entire circumstance so that we might be able to understand these things. So our prayer is very simple this morning, that you would make this book live in us, that you would show us ourselves, and that you would show us our Savior, and that you would make this book live in us. For Jesus' sake, amen. So if you have a worship folder, you can turn right to the back. That's our outline this morning. We're going to get right to it. Our master's history. Our master's history. That's our first point. So the noted apologetics writer and speaker, Ravi Zacharias, once said that if you truly want to know the core essence of the belief system of any religion, then part of that search is to find out as much as you can about the origin of the one who began it. Okay, so if you want to know what a religion really is, then find out as much as you can about the originator of that one. And and I would suggest to you that is a very, very sensible line of thinking. And if we do that, then it becomes quite clear that as soon as the Lord Jesus Christ steps onto the stage of human history as a baby born of a virgin lying in a feeding trough, the future of Christianity's leader would be marked by those seeking to destroy him. Because at the very beginning of God's redemption plan, the origin, through the sending of his only son, Jesus, this origin was marked by persecutors, by those who sought out to destroy him. So you have Herod the Great, the oldest son of Herod Antipater. Herod the Great, governor of the, uh, of the region of Galilee. Herod the Great, way past middle age, loved by Rome, seeking to murder a baby for fear of his coming rule. Now, loved ones, even though many of us are very familiar with the details of the Christmas story, does that not on some level strike you as strange that a grown man, a ruler, 
A king would want a certain male baby dead and would do anything to see that to its end? But as we said from the very beginning of the scroll written on persecution for Christ, and as we'll discover those who would seek to follow Christ, we find that Christ himself in the very early days of his life was being hunted and hounded so that he might be persecuted to his death. But not only as a baby. As we read the gospel accounts, we discover that in the early days of the earthly ministry of Jesus, the same type of thing happened. In fact, at the very end of Jesus' first public sermon in a synagogue somewhere in Nazareth, the congregation was so furious with what he said. Uh, Today, the scripture, Isaiah 61, is fulfilled in in your hearing. Luke records for us, chapter 4, verse 28, that they took him to a cliff to throw him off it. First sermon. My first sermon, people fell asleep. No one wanted to kill me, at least not yet. Later on, when Jesus made the true claim that God was his father, John 5, 18 records for us, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. So again, apparently the murder of Christ was was always on the minds of the Jews of Jesus' circumstance. Matthew 12, 14, after Jesus healed a man with a shriveled hand, the very religious... And very conservative, always a dangerous combination. Very religious, very conservative Pharisees. That's the kicker there, Matthew records for us. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Okay, religious people. Now think with me. Plotted is a strong word. It means they spent a whole lot of time thinking how they were going to break the sixth commandment. On a, on a man. And how often do we read where wolves and sheep clothing, religious wolves and sheep clothing in the case of Jesus. They tried to trap him with their little question and answer sessions. Okay, so in this young man's life, from his birth, from his earliest days of public ministry to his very end, he had people, religious people, doing their best to persecute and see him dead, even though he said he was the way and the truth and the life, and even though he said God's son, that's who he is, and even though he said, I'm the only answer to man's rebel sin. And of course, they didn't know, but many of them should. In fact, as you think about it, the the ones that should have known should have told the ones who didn't. But anyway, Jesus made it plain that the very reason why he had come was to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Matthew 1, 21 says, the angel of the Lord, for you will give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay. So when you study the origin of the foundation of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that as soon after his arrival, now just think, as soon as almost literally he steps his foot down to the ground all through his life, he would be constantly hounded, not just for a debate. I mean, that would be one thing, right? But he was hounded by those seeking to persecute him and to see his holy life gone. But we thank God, as we should, that what they intended for evil God intended for good, the saving of many lives, the saving of perhaps your life, but certainly my life. Now, just as an aside, the the Greek word that's often used in the New Testament for persecution uh, gives itself to this idea. It's not, not actually to death, but it essentially means this. To wear out by constant application of pressure, to, to grind down, to defeat by attrition, just, just wear him down. So let's think on Jesus for a moment. At his birth, hunted down. His first sermon, off the cliff with him. All through his life, 
His life is on edge. Who wants me dead now? Kill him. Catch him. Hey, Jesus, here's a question. Hope you get the thing wrong. That's his whole life. The Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 25, English Standard Version says this, of the, the kingdom of evil's intention, here it is, to wear down the saints. To just wear them down. And of course, what was true of Jesus Christ was just as true for his apostles. It was just as true for those who carried his message of the cross. Well, why is that? Well, because the players on the field, they always get more knocked around than the spectators in the stand. And that takes us to our second point, his follower's destiny. Number two, his follower's destiny. And I, and I hope this does not come as something new to you. But Jesus expected his followers to suffer for him. Just as for his sake, he expected them to obey him and to tell others about him. Now, as you read your Bible, that fact is just undeniable. It's plain as rain. Let me give you two quotes from the lips of Jesus Christ from your Bible to kind of send that truth home to us. The first is the eighth beatitude from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The second is what theologians call his uh, death discourse or his apostolic, um, I messed it up in the first, not apostolic, but up. Uh, Revelation discourse. See, I can't even say the fancy word. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Apocalyptic, that was it. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. That's Jesus. Here's Jesus again. Matthew 24, 9 to his disciples. You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And there, that's the key. Not because we're morons, but because of Christ. And so as you read the Bible and maybe you should go home and read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. What Jesus said would happen to his followers happened to his followers. So, for example, in the book of Acts, the history book of the church, we find Peter and John first flogged and then told to never speak on the name of Jesus again. And so they leave that religious courtroom, Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. And then it goes on, and day after day, from house to house, temple, they never stopped teaching and never stopped announcing that Jesus is the Christ. Stephen, a deacon of the church in Jerusalem, Stephen, a man the Bible describes as full of faith, full of wisdom, grace, and full of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 7 records for us that he was the church's first martyr. He was stoned. Okay, well, why was Stephen stoned? What warranted human beings to throw stones at another human being to his death? Well, listen to your Bible. This is picking up towards the end of Stephen's talk. Verse 51, you're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed him and murdered him. And that's why Stephen was stoned. He was preaching the truth as it is in Jesus. And of course, it's not only Stephen. James, Acts chapter 12, he was preaching Christ and him crucified. That's all, that's all James was preaching and Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, had James put to death by sword. And probably the best known example, at least right now for us, since we're working through 1 Corinthians, is the Apostle Paul. 
Because almost, and I hope you're picking this up, as soon as Christ comes on the scene, persecution, first sermon, persecution, Christianity right out of the gate, post-resurrection and ascension, persecution. And now, Paul's converted right out of the gate. Acts chapter 9, verse 16. God sends Paul a message. I will show him how much he must suffer. I'm going to show him how much he'll be pressed down and worn out and eroded to the, to the brink for my name. Right out of the gate. In fact, in Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, this is how they were described. Acts chapter 15, verse 26. Right out of the gate. These are men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, loved ones, did you hear that? They risked their lives for the name And that's the only name I hope that any of us would risk our lives for. The name of Jesus Christ. So listen to how Paul describes his own sufferings for the sake of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.10. We are fools for Christ's sake. 2 Corinthians 4.11. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Are you catching that? It's only going to be because Jesus I'm going down. 2 Corinthians 12.10. For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Acts 21.13. I am ready, says Paul, not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. For Christ's sake. Now, I want you to listen carefully, please. What our king, our lovely, precious king, was dragged through by his persecutors who opposed his gospel claims as he walked this earth and lived his spotless, beautiful life and then died our deserved death in much the same way was to be the destiny of what his followers, his apostles and disciples were dragged through and persecuted for as they carried the only authorized message of Christ crucified to a sick, lost, violent, hopeless world. What was to be the destiny of the master was the destiny of those who follow him. And what Paul was subjected to himself, he expected, at least in some measure, to be the common lot for all Christian believers in every age. In fact, what Paul does He even links our faith in Christ and our suffering for Christ as twins, as a dual gift from God. Listen to your Bible. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. Paul says, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to also suffer for him. Now, do you see the gifts are tied together? It seems in the mind of God that you can't have one without the other. Gift number one, God's grace for Christ's sake. There it is again. Enables us to believe on Christ. And what a gift that is. No longer under condemnation. Gift number two, God's grace for Christ's sake again. Calls us to suffer for him. To suffer in the consequences for the message of the cross. And please remember, this suffering is not for for personal convictions or political convictions or personal preference. Who would go down for those things? But believing and relying and declaring and living for Christ crucified, risen, returning. Relying on the one who said that he's the only judge of the living and the dead. And the one who said that our only hope in life and death, not just us here, but everyone who's ever existed, is him. And Paul says, God's grace brings salvation. 
But God's grace also brings persecution. And, and didn't we read that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's written in the imperative, by the way, in the Greek, which means it's going to happen. Everyone who seeks to please God in Christ, and there it is, relying on the gospel and everything in Christ, that's what in Christ means, Everything, everyone like this will be worn out by constant application of pressure, will be grinded down, attempted to be defeated by attrition, slow destruction, eroded by stress. They won't let up. Who won't let up? Those who oppose Christ, those who oppose his message, those who oppose his authority, those who oppose his ways and his reign. And again, those are the dual gifts of grace and they're true, not just for his day, but for every believer in every age, beginning with ourselves. So it demands a question, doesn't it? Can I ask you, please, this morning, is that any of us in this moral, well-heeled, well-fed, well-balanced, <laughs> witness, wellness-oriented culture, is that any of us? Now, I'm trying to still figure that out, to be, to be honest with you. It's hard, but it's there. Number one, our master's history. From the moment he steps onto the scene of human history, persecution. Number two, his followers' destiny. As they follow their master, declaring his message only, persecution. And those of us who follow Christ should expect the same as the teacher so the student, they hated him, Jesus said, they'll hate us. Finally, prayer's necessity. Master's history, follower's destiny, prayer's necessity. So if you ask yourself the question, what has been the church's response to her persecutors? Well, part of that answer is that she always hasn't got it right, has she? At times, the church behaves like James and John, the sons of Debedee, and they just want to call down fire and get rid of the whole lot. Holy wars. Holy causes, but with no cross in them. But what did our parents teach us? They said that we ought not to play with fire. And what does the Bible teach us? Well, we shouldn't play with fire, but we need to plead in prayer. Physical violence in these things is, is the way of those who oppose the message. It's not Christ's way. So what's the answer to the question? What has been the church's response to her persecutors? Well, when you look at the, the text of Scripture, the inspired text of Scripture, our authority in everything, we learn that there's some responses. Here's three. Number one, persistence. How do we respond to our persecutors? Re persistence, tenacity, doggedness, resolve to endure all that comes to her from within or from without as she holds the gospel line, holds the gospel line, persistence. Jesus is too precious to them to just let them go that easy. So Peter and John were commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus at all. And then Acts 4, Luke records for us, Peter and John replied to the religious Sanhedrin, which is right in God's eyes. To listen to you or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what you have seen, what we have seen and what we've heard. Right? Persistence, tenacity. Luther, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. I can hear Luther in my mind going, so what? God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So what has been the church's response to persecutors? Persistence, hold that gospel line, but also patience. 
allowing and trusting in God's sovereign rule and reign and purpose to unfold. Again, listen to your Bibles. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and following. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Implications, we've sinned. We've found deceit in our mouth. Okay, but so what did the perfect one do? Our example and everything. Well, when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus committed his cause to the Father, and he lived in submission to that reign regardless of the fallout. Even in persecution, especially in persecution. Okay? So what has been, what has been the church's response to her persecutors? Well, persistence, patience. And by the way, the old King's English, what is the word for Patience. Long-suffering. Long-suffering, as as in like 2,000 years, yeah, and maybe even longer. Finally, what has been the church's response? Well, when you look to the Bible, the authority on everything, prayer. Prayer. But, But specifically, corporate prayer. So again, to our Bibles, Peter and John, they were released from the Sanhedrin persecution. What do we find happening? They go back to their own. They told them what happened to them. And then Acts chapter 4 verse 24 says to us, they, the house church, raised their voices together, together in prayer to God. And what did they say? Well, here it is. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the, your servant David. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The rulers take their stand against you and against Christ, your anointed one. And then listen to what they ask God. Verse 29, now Lord, consider their threats and get them. No, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they all, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Stop. What do spirit-filled people do? Do they dance around like clowns? Do they roar like lions? Do they wait for that little goose bump to, up, to go up their spine? Ooh, I feel it. Is that what they do? Now listen to what the Bible says. They spoke the word of God boldly. The very thing that bought them their persecution in the first place was the very thing that they would go out and do. And God let them. Happened to James. James was put to death by sword and, and King Herod, who's a pragmatist, said the people like that. So let's get Peter and put him to death. And what happened? Well, this is what happened. This is the church's response. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. But the church was earnestly, a strenuously. The Greek word is, is, a, is a very um, uh, exciting word. It literally means to, to, they were fully stretched. They gave it their all, praying to God for him. And God in his mercy saved Peter. Praying together. So finally, before we take communion... Our Lord Jesus Christ in the garden on the night of his betrayal, the night before his death. He was preparing for the massive pain he would endure because of our sin. We find him praying. We find him asking the disciples to do the same. But of course, they're sleeping. No one's watching. No one's praying. Just sleeping. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully, please. Our brothers and sisters in the corner, every corner of the world are suffering simply because they put their place 
They put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And I suspect many of us have done that. And very wise people have established a day of awareness so that we might pray for them. And we have set a time this evening, one hour, six to seven, to, to stoke, if you would, those fires and to call on God on behalf of our family members in Christ that we'll see one day in heaven from Uzbekistan, from Crimea, from, from Yemen, from Somalia, Iraq, and Syria, and, and many other places to pray earnestly for him. So I want you to think with me. We're not a cult, are we? We do things here by volition. But Jesus is our king. And Christian love has always been action and not just sentimental feelings. So I know that there are many good reasons why you may or may not come this evening. I understand this. But there are many good reasons why many of you should come this evening. And I hope that you understand this. Therefore, I would invite all of you to prayerfully consider attending this evening's service for one hour and pray for those persecuted simply because they said yes to Christ like many of us have here this morning. Hmm. So a couple of weeks ago, I found out that, I don't know how I was reading this, but I found out that in America, the more money you spend on your wedding the more likely the chances are for a divorce. I don't know why that is, but they did statistics and there it is. So along those same lines, I want you to think with me. There is essentially the death of the evening prayer service in America. I mean, we're probably one of the few places that still have them. And I'm not an expert, but sometimes I wonder. This is what I wonder. Could it be that the death of the prayer service has something to do with the shrinking of the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it is. Jesus was very clear. Eventually, this world will crumble. All, only God's kingdom will last. Those who follow Christ will meet persecution in various forms. It's guaranteed. Christ is our example. Christ is our confidence. And Christ Jesus himself calls us to pray. Thank you for your attention. If we would bow together, and if those men who will be serving communion, if you please come forward. Our Father, may, may you in mercy let Jesus Christ have his perfect work in all of us here and everywhere, that we might be more like our master, so that he will be more clearly proclaimed and spoken of and lived for in these days. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.